Psalm 145. And we're going to make some application for our life. Because the question of this series of life lessons, which we began the end of last school term, and now we're back into the school term, we're kind of back into it for another four weeks. We are looking for lessons in our life because we live in a pretty crazy world. And the question of this series is, how do I remain sane in an insane world? And you look around us and we live in a pretty crazy world. How am I going to remain sane? How am I going to know and live what is true when everything else around me is upside down and when right is seen as wrong and wrong is seen as right? And you can argue whether or not left is right and right is left. You can argue everything because it's all relative. We live in an insane world. So how do I remain sane? And so what we're doing is we're going back to the scripture and saying, what does the Bible say? Maybe, which I believe in my heart, this is absolutely true. Maybe God has already given us some tools, given us some instruction that we can apply to our lives today. Previous three messages we had in this series, we looked at Psalm 34 and also Psalm 52. And we came to the conclusion that God is good. And that was the old principle. God is good. We often come to the thought of God is good. And notice at the end of it, I put a full stop. God is good, full stop. Because so often we say, well, God is good, but my circumstances. It's a beautiful sunny day outside, but some of you whined about it being cold. And you can have the best weather, the best things, and God is good, but, and you look at that like, but my big toe. But, and you, the big things in this world, but my relationships, but my health, but my finances, but the uncertainty of tomorrow when I start this new job, all the various things that we do, God is good, but. But you know what? David, who wrote these psalms that we've been looking at, who became King David, the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus Christ. I mean, Jesus himself is referred to as the son of David. David doesn't just say God is good. Our principle for today builds on the good. And it says God is great. And that's what we find in this psalm. God's not just good. He's great. And notice I put another full stop at the end. Great full stop. And we can begin to build and develop because it says in Psalm 145, verse number three, great is the Lord. It was not very hard to work out this principle for today. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. What was David experiencing? And Bible commentators do not know at what period of his life that David wrote Psalm 145. They suggest it was probably nearing the end of his life. And some of the Bible commentators suggest that he was referring and reflecting back upon his life. And if you look at David's life, he had some highs and he had some serious lows. And I'll just reflect. He had the highs of winning battles and victory. He had the highs of coming uh, into the city and seeing the Ark of the Covenant coming in and worshiping God with dance and truly uninhibited praising God, which is something I personally have never done. 
I, and none of us know what it like, is like to praise God. And someday in heaven, we're going to be able to truly praise and worship God and sing holy, holy, holy with the heavenly choir and never get bored because every single time we sing the word holy, it's as if it's the first time we've ever sung it because the very presence of God is there. And we'll be able to worship uninhibited. And David had the highs of worshiping God and seeing how God was working in his life. He had the lows of sinful adultery. He had the lows of murder. He had the lows of his own son trying to depose him as king. He had the highs and he had the lows. And as he reflects upon his life, and maybe you can do the same, as you sat with a person who is elderly, who knows Christ as a Savior, as they look back and they reflect upon their life, what words of wisdom do they talk about? And rarely does someone really care about the color of the curtains. When they reflect upon their life, they go back and what is really true? And the conclusion that David comes to is God is good, but also God is great. Psalm 145 is a well-used psalm in the Jewish religion of Judaism. In fact, in the Talmud, they have a, a writing there that says those, I don't believe this to be true, but this is what they say. They say those who recite this particular saying called the, the Ashari, it's a prayer which includes the entire Psalm 145. They say, if you would quote that three times a day, you're guaranteed to go into heaven, which that's not what we find in the Bible. But what is it's, it's a psalm that is well revered. When I visited Israel earlier this year, I went to the Western Wall. And I walked right up to the wall in the front, but all around me, behind me, were men. And there's the men's side, and the opposite side was the ladies' side, which I didn't see. And the men's side, and you have them come, and they bring their prayer books, and they stand before, and they pray three times a day. They often will pray Psalm 145 along with some other psalms. And they have their books, and they pray them, and they're sincere. And if you look, in fact, in that photo, you'll see there's a little archway in the back that goes underneath a walkway and it goes down and there's a large area in there. And they have, in fact, it's quite acoustically quite nice. And all these men are standing there praying underneath in the wall because the thought is they want to be as close to where the temple would be as possible. There's a lot of sincerity in, the, in Judaism. But what we find in our faith, those who know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we can take this psalm and go, I can see Jesus all the way through this. And how am I now going to praise God? How am I going to show that God is great as I do this and live this out in my own life? Because that simple phrase, a simple question rather, how do I remain sane in an insane world? And if David was to answer that question with this psalm, he would simply say, God is great and we start mulling that over because that rolled off my tongue so easily and any of us can say that god is great well i must have praised god today if god really is great that changes the way that i view myself that changes the way that i view my circumstances that changes the way that I view you. And it changes the way that I view the people that I don't even like. 
it changes absolutely everything. If God really is great, how will you and I live differently as a result? How will we live differently tomorrow when we go to work or go to school? How will life be different if God really is great? Let's live this out. I have some application for us today. We're going to go through it relatively quickly. This is not a really deep message. This is a message based upon Scripture that we can take and say, let's make this practical. And my hope is that you'll still remember some of these points on Wednesday and Thursday this week. And something, in a positive way, I'll bother you a little bit. And the Word of God will be stuck in your mind. And some circumstance will take place later on this week when you'll be tempted to live as if God is not great. And you'll turn it around and go, you know what? God's great. I better live differently. And that's a wonderful opportunity to truly praise God and to show Him the worth that He deserves. So, Therefore, how do I remain sane in an insane world? We need to learn to praise. I have four points. If you have your bulletin, the inside your, your notes inside your bulletin, you can follow along and fill the blanks. And the four, uh, learn to praise. It needs to be personal. It's going to be generational. It's going to be missional. But it's also going to be practical in the, the day-to-day. So let's go to that first one. Learn to praise. It's personal. It's an act of the will. It says in verses 1 and 2, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. In there we see three I will commitments. They're underlined on the screen. He says, I will extol you which is a word that literally means I'm going to lift you up. I'm going to lift up the name of God. No longer is the name of God a swear word. It's not being blamed for every bad thing in the world. I'm lifting up. This is an act of of worship before God. It's an act of of praise before Him. Then it goes on and says, I will. So here's another commitment. I will bless you. That word bless literally means to show adoration toward I'm going to adore God. I'm going to adore His name. Then it goes on and says, I will praise you, your name forever and ever. That praise is literally an act of worship. So there's a commitment that takes place, and it's a personal commitment. No one can do this on your behalf. It would be nice if we could praise God on behalf of somebody else. Nowhere in the Bible do we have permission to praise for anyone but ourselves. These I will statements, I was thinking through this and I was thinking about our personal commitment. The first thought that came to my mind was when I officiate a wedding, we have the I do statements. And sometimes if they're more modern, they have the I will statements. And you stand before a, a young couple and they hold hands. And you know the hands are all sweaty. And they're nervous. And their voice is a little bit crackly. 
as they make these commitments. And in the ceremony of a wedding ceremony, it starts off with a bride walking down the aisle and the nervous groom standing there watching her walk down the aisle. And then they gather hands together and we often have a word of prayer and I introduce things. And the very next thing on the list of things to do in the wedding ceremony is the I do statements. It's often referred to as your statement of intention. You are saying publicly, I'm not here under duress. I actually choose to marry you. I mean, it's maybe they're squeezing the hands really tight, like you will say, I do. And they, they make commitment like, do you promise to love her, comfort her, honor and keep her for better or worse, for richer or poor, in sickness and health, forsaking all others? Be faithful only to her for as long as you both shall live. And you want to hear an enthusiastic, without hesitation, I do. But you know what? It's not the mother or father sitting on the front rows saying, I do. It's those two making the, their personal commitment. The same thing for our praise to God. No one can praise God on your behalf. The young couple being married, they don't know what the future holds. They're excited, they're sweaty, they're nervous. They have no idea what the future is going to hold, the ups and the downs. They don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, but they know that they're going to make a commitment. That commitment builds and it needs to become a daily commitment. And this is where I believe, I'll make a strong statement here. This is where I believe oftentimes marriages begin to break down because we made a vow 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And it's a daily I do. It's a daily, I will choose to love and honor her. So the second verse there says, we talk about when. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Now, I'm, I'm learning. I've been married for 19 years, and maybe by my 20th year I have this down, that every day... I must commit to love and honor and support and to be faithful to my wife. It's a personal commitment. And here is a personal commitment between us and God. It's not like, I praise you on Sunday. What more do you want from me? Try that with your wife, men. <laughs> no, and similar with God. God, I'm going to praise you every day and forever and ever. And I'm yet to officiate a wedding with a couple that doesn't actually believe that commitment when they make it. We don't always keep it, but they believe it when they make it. It's a personal commitment that says, if anyone's going to love my God, it's going to be me. No one's going to love my God on my behalf. And to use a very offensive Illustration, I don't want to share my wife with any of you. She's my wife. If anyone's going to love my wife, it's going to be me. And you can tell her that later, please. She's up with your kids, kids right now. I don't want to share my wife with anybody. And a similar thing with God. Between us and God, is anyone's going to praise God? It's going to be me. I'm going to lift up 
the name of God. I'm going to show adoration towards his name. And it's not going to be just once off. It's going to be every day, forever and ever. And when we learn to praise and it becomes a personal commitment, when becomes just natural. It's not like we go, you know what, it's time to praise God again. It becomes natural in everything that we do. It changes the way that we view ourselves and view the world because we're filtering through. Everything that we do is filtered through the praise of God. So not only do we need to learn personally, the second point there is it's generational. And this psalm, it continues on, and we see in verses number four, it says, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. I came across a statement, which I said, in fact, several statements that I've kind of put together. And, it, and it's, a, it's a strong statement that I believe is absolutely true. We are only one generation away from being totally godless. Another way of saying that is totally secular. We're only one generation away. And we've seen the digression of our world and how far we are. And people often reflect back upon, you know, in my day, they look back upon, well, this is your day because we're living in it. And what responsibility do we have to teach the current and the future generations to know and to love and to praise God? It's something that is taught and it's certainly not caught that's why we have programs with our church family. That's why even right this moment, the kids are upstairs uh, with Kids Church. We want the, the Sunday services to be something that is practical and applicable. In your bulletin, we tell you what the kids are learning. So hopefully when you sit at lunch today, you can ask your children and they tell you what they learned rather than going, nothing. We want to, to help you come alongside you. But you know what? This is not our responsibility as a local church to raise your children. Well, our responsibility is to come alongside you, to equip you and to encourage you with the tools. But nowhere do we find the, the responsibility to, or the, rather the, the permission to abdicate our responsibility like the church will do it or the school will, will do it. It's us as parents. It's our responsibility. That's why we have youth group. In fact, this Friday night, we have a youth grow night at, here, there's a good commercial break, 7 p.m. this Friday night for the teenagers. We'll be upstairs with a grow night, helping, the, coming alongside your parents to equip you to become who God created you to be. The goal is to help you to teach you something rather than just to catch it one time. I have a very, very silly illustration. If you were a child of the 90s, and if you grew up as a teenager in the 90s, and you watched television because in the good old days, pre-internet days, we had four TV channels. And so every kid got back from school and watched exactly the same TV program. And when you went to school the next day, you would talk about it. There's a particular show which I'm not an advocate of, but every single teenage kid that I knew watched Fresh Prince of Bel-Air growing up. Now, do not do the rap at the beginning, but could you? Could you? You could do every word, couldn't you? I really impressed myself this week, and I started thinking of this, and I did the words word for word perfectly all the way through. I was like, how do I know something? I've literally not watched an episode of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air since I was a teenager. How is it that I can quote 
the silly intro rap from the very beginning of this TV show. It ran from 1990 to 1996. There were six seasons. Do you know why? It's because five days a week, probably at 4 p.m. in the afternoon, we get back and we sit down with our afternoon snack and watch the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, and it was told to us, told to us, told to us, and now 20-plus years later, I can quote it easily because it was something instilled within us. Now, when you go home today, you can try it out and see if you know it as well. But you know what the Bible says? The Bible says in Psalm 145, verses 5 and 6, it says, On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. That's another I will commitment. He made three earlier. Now here's two more. He made an I will commitment. It says, I will meditate. They shall speak of the mighty might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. He says, I will meditate. In other words, I'm going to ponder this. I'm going to think about it. I'm going to dwell on it. Or I'm going to also declare, you know, I'm going to talk about it with other people. When God was talking to Joshua, Joshua became the leader of the nation of Israel. He led the people out of the wilderness into their promised land. He had been the number two man for the previous 40 years. And now God had come to him in Joshua chapter number one. And he had told him, wake up, Moses is dead. Now you're the leader. And God gives Joshua some reassurance in verse number eight. And he says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, and you shall meditate on it day and night. You're continually thinking about it. You're continually munching on it, chewing it, it for the goodness that it has. And here's the reason why. So that you may be careful to do according to, and here's the key word, all that is written in it. For then you'll make your way prosperous and then you'll have good success. We like that last line. We want to be prosperous. We want to have good success. Well, how do we do that? We chew on, we munch on continually the word of God, not just part of it, but all of it. We learn to praise. It's personal, it's generational, but it also is missional. We think beyond and think big. That, another way of saying missional is it's evangelistic. It looks at others and says, this is wonderful and good for me. It's good for my family, but it's also good for the rest of the world. That's why our church is involved in faith promise missions. With our giving and our prayer, we support the Paneros in Vanuatu and Duane and Valerie Keefe as a church plant in the north of Perth because we want to think this is good for us, wonderful, but it's also beyond us as well. It says in verses 11 and 12, They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power. Verse number 12 begins with the key. To make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. We're going to go back to verse number 8. You have your Bibles? You'll see verse number 8. There's four things that a person needs to know. It says in verse 12, it says to make known. And verse number 8 lays out what is it that a person needs to know. We could, without exaggeration, I could spend four weeks on this one verse. Because what we see here is it's the who. 
Who do people need to know? They need to know God. It begins with the Lord. You notice the word Lord there is on the screen. It's capitalized. It's L-O-R-D. And that word Lord is it's distinguished often in your Bibles with the capitals because it distinguishes it from any other word Lord, as in like a, a, a landowner or a master. This is actually a distinct word in the Hebrew that is the word that we know as Jehovah. It's literally the eternal self-existent one. That particular word Lord or Jehovah, I looked this up, is used in the Old Testament 6,528 times. And from what I understand about the scribes, as, as the old ancient scribes would write out the word, and in Hebrew they always write, um, not left to right, but right to left, and they would write out the word. And any time they came up upon the word Jehovah, they would ceremonially stop, they would ceremonially wash themselves, and then they would return and write that word. Now, if you look over Psalm 145, it says, Lord, 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 Lord. So in my thoughts, and this is just a bit of a joke, like you think, I don't really want to write out Psalm 145 because it takes forever because I'm continually washing my hands. But that's the reverence that they had towards who they were talking about here. They were talking about God. People need to know God. They don't need to know all our other political beliefs, all our likes and dislikes, people have a deep need to know the creator and sustainer of the universe. Going on from that, what do people need to know? That verse continues on. They need to know the what. They need to know the gospel. As we continue on in that verse, it says... The Lord is, and there's three things, gracious and merciful, slow to anger. We see here the grace of God, which is our unmerited favor. We have the mercy of God, which in a very simplistic way of saying, not receiving the punishment that we deserve from God. And it goes on and says, slow to anger. This is the gospel in essence, the mercy and the grace, but also the slow to anger. In 1885, a man named Charles Spurgeon wrote a commentary, in fact, over a number of years, wrote a commentary of the book of Psalms. And he's known as the Treasury of David. In 1885, this man, Charles Spurgeon, said this about slow to anger. Even those who refuse his grace yet share in long-suffering... When men do not repent, but on the contrary, go from bad to worse, he is still adverse to let his wrath flame forth against them. God is slow to anger, even upon the people who are rejecting him. If you have family that are far from God at this time, we want them to know the grace and the mercy of God. But thank God for his slow to anger. Thank God for his patience with you and I. Thank God he didn't look at us and go, you know what, that strike number 482, you're out. Thank God for his mercy and grace, but also the fact that he's just patient with us. Then it goes on, the who, 
the what, but then here's the why. Because we have the salvation. We have the love of God. And it's described there as the steadfast love of God. We have the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And Jesus says that. And Jesus also says in John chapter number 6, verse 40, and Jesus says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. We have... The fact that we can praise God because it's personal, it's generational, but it's also missional. And we have a God who can be known. We have the gospel that can be understood. And we have salvation that can be received. Thank God for that. And that's nothing else is a wonderful thing to praise. But the final point we have this morning is we learn to praise. And I'm just scratching the surface of this entire psalm. Now it becomes practical. How can we make this practical? It's personal, it's generational, it's missional, and now it's practical in the day-to-day life. There's four practical reasons to praise. Verse number 14 talks about it being the Lord upholds. And notice who it's focused upon. He's the one who raises us up and holds us and gives us strength when we feel like we have no strength. This is something we can praise God about. You may be, like some of you are attending Grace Christian School, and you get three weeks off. And then if that's not enough, you don't start school until Tuesday. So it's another extra day. And you may be thinking, I can't go back. First of all, you have no sympathy from me. Secondly, you can turn around and say, you know what? I don't need strength from this, strength from that, strength from my holiday, strength from relaxation. The Lord upholds, and it goes on, it says, all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. So in a practical way, he's the one that raises us up. He's the one that gives us strength. It goes on from that in verses 15 and 16, and talks about the provision of God. And notice who the focus is only on. We started off in the very beginning with I will, I will, I will, with five different I will commitments. And now we've turned it around and now we're asking God, you, you will, you will. That's what we can praise. It says in verses 15 and 16, the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. There's not one thing or one blessing that you enjoy that was not given to you by God. That's something to praise God about. We also can praise God because he's near us. Verse 18 says, literally, it was very easy to work out this point. The Lord is near. It was easy to pick out that one. He's near to all who call on him and to all who call on him in truth. God, in in theology, he is everywhere present. So we can say, okay, God, you are everywhere. But it's more than just the fact that God is everywhere present that we can praise God about. He's also close and he's near to us. So therefore, when you pray, you don't just pray to a God who is everywhere somewhere. 
You have a God who promises to hear our prayers. That's why, in a bit of tradition, because we're not commanded, you have to say these magical words before a prayer to go through. You can pray any words to, directly to God. But when I pray, oftentimes I'll, re, I'll begin with, you know, dear Heavenly Father or dear Lord God, and I'm directing my thoughts directly to God. And then as we pray, we, we have our prayer requests and we have our praises. And, we, and then at the end of that, we often end with, and in Jesus' name, amen. And to be honest with you, that's a little bit of tradition. But what it does, it reminds us we're praying directly to God. The Bible teaches us that we're praying in the power of the Holy Spirit. He's directing us and guiding us. And at the end of that, we remind ourselves... And in a sense, we're kind of reminding God, but God doesn't need reminding that whose authority do you have to speak to cr the creator of the universe in the power of the Holy Spirit? It's only in the name of Jesus. And all three members of the Trinity are actively involved in your simple prayer of thank you, God, for this food. Amen. We continue on and we see finally he preserves we can praise God because he preserves us. And he says he preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. That word preserves literally means he guards or protects and defends us. The saddest part of this, this verse here, though, is the wicked he will destroy because there is a consequence to rejecting God. There's a consequence of rejecting his salvation and the gospel message. I think one of the saddest things, and I was mulling this over this week, was that when a good thing happens to the unbeliever, they have no one to praise. I want you to mull that over. What a privilege that it is to know the creator and sustainer, the self-existent one. And he says, I'm, I know you. I'm going to uphold you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to be near you. And I'm going to preserve you. And therefore, as a result of that, we come to verse number 21, at the very end of that psalm, where it says, My mouth, and here's our response, will speak the praise of the Lord. Let all flesh bless His holy name forever and ever. Something I find really interesting is Psalm 145. There's still five more Psalms in the book of Psalms after this. And they're not written by David. They're written by other people. And all five of those Psalms, the first line of those Psalms is, praise the Lord. Every single one of those Psalms begins with praise. So this is a Psalm that sets us up for the rest of our life. So let me make a challenge to you to make this personal. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. And maybe you can mold it over in your head. If you need to say it out loud, go ahead and say it out loud. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. No one can do that on your behalf. And you start thinking about the blessings of God. You start thinking about your salvation. You start thinking about the hope and the joy and the peace of knowing that God is near you every step of the way. And sometime this week, you're going to have an opportunity to be, re, to be reminded that God is great as we live in this world of ups and downs and backs and forth. 